Seven Mile Road, what's going on? You doing all right today? I am grateful to be here to share the gospel with you all um, and increasingly encouraged by our partnership. Uh, just, uh, just as a commercial, I just want to let you know that I'm a chocolate preacher, as you probably already noticed. So that means that I'm used to some amens and some folks talking back to me. What, what I learned, however, is that some folks amen by taking notes or you might amen by leaning forward. So, if, so just let me know that I'm in the building, okay? <laughs> there you go. Grateful for my friend Chuck that came out with me today. I put him on the spot to give those, that little two-minute reflection about prayer. He was a little nervous about it, but it's, he did a great job. I'm appreciative of him and all the great pastors and friends here today. You probably see it behind me because it's so cool, uh, but I want to preach from the subject of um, stop being a slave to your own self-interest. Stop being a slave to your own self-interest. Would you pray with me? Father, we um, come to you now. Lord, I pray that uh, you will sit me down. I pray that you will stand up in me mightily um, and that the, the gospel, um, which has been founded since the ages even began, Lord, would be communicated clearly and that it will encourage our hearts um, for your glory. So we thank you and we honor you in Jesus' name. And all the people of God that agree with that say, Amen. There we go. We'll start out early talking back to one another. A rabbi uh, shared a story of a conversation that he had with a young man who he saw was clearly enjoying a plate of fish he was eating. He walked up to the young man. He said, young man, why are you eating that fish? The gentleman replied, because it's delicious and I love fish. The winsome rabbi nodded his head and he stroked his beard and with a smirk on his face, he replied, well, if you love the fish, how come you snatched it out of his natural habitat? And how come you decided that you were going to kill the fish, boil it and eat it? He said, wouldn't that be something barbaric to do to an object of your affection? The young man, probably like myself, would have been stunned by the line of reasoning, well, that line of questioning. And he sat there with a blank stare uh, but the winsome rabbi gave him one parting shot before he left. He said, you don't love that fish. You love yourself, and you love how that fish can satisfy you. Therefore, you use that fish as a means to serve your own self-interest. And as I thought about that story and listened to the exchange between that young man and that winsome rabbi, I couldn't help but to think that many of our relationships are fostered across similar lines, right? Uh, we build relationships with people oftentimes because a relationship with them often benefits us greatly. So we've even come up with a real cool name for it. We call it networking. We say, well, I'm just, I'm just networking. I'm just meeting some people. I'm just establishing a community of colleagues and we help each other in advancement when in all actuality it's really a mutually beneficial relationship that we use to, for our advantage in some way. So more often than not, um, uh, these people within our networks become the exclusive beneficiaries of our benevolence, right? Now, now listen, we know that networks are extremely important. Jesus had an extensive uh, extensive connections with people throughout his, his journey. We know that the Apostle Paul similarly had droves of like-minded people that aided him on his missionary journey. But I think our passage this morning makes very, very clear 
that if the extent of your benevolence is limited to people who are able to reciprocate it, then we're simply manipulators to, who use people for our own self-interest. This text, this message today should cause us to examine our hearts. Do we really show kindness to people because of the love that we have for Christ Jesus and that he showed kindness to sinners? Or do we build relationships and foster bonds with others because in some way we, it will make our lives better? That's the question on the table today. And I think Jesus is beckoning us to make a determination of whether we're exhibiting biblical self-interest or whether we're exhibiting uh, 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 unbiblical selfishness. Biblical, biblical self-interest has a, has a capacity for the, for the concerns and the issues of others. But rather, unbiblical selfishness focuses so much on our own issues that we become jaded to the struggles and the problems that others are experiencing. Let me start off by saying that the Bible does affirm legitimate pursuits of self-interest. We read in Philippians 2, 4, it says this. It says, let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Uh, Jesus, in fact, uses self-interest as the basis of gauging our love for others. When he says in Mark 12, 31, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. But what scripture cautions us is selfish interest that delves into selfishness. And this type of selfishness lacks concern for the affairs of other people. Right. So if I could coin it, I would say it's an immoderate concern for one's own issues. And I don't know about you, but it's very difficult to be friends with selfish people. I know I can get an amen and a half on that one. It's hard to be friends with people who simply only care about their own issues. Here, here goes a telltale sign. If you have a conversation with someone and you are expressing your concerns over an issue, but yet they take that conversation, hijack it to make it about themselves, it's a telltale sign that they are very, very selfish. Or if you are trying to tell somebody about your situation and then you find out that they don't want to give you any depth or any insight because they're too concerned with themselves, that makes it hard for us to be friends with selfish people. But the problem is, is oftentimes we're the ones that hijack the conversations. We're the ones that want to talk about ourselves and our own problems. But I think Jesus is letting us know here that there's a really slippery slope. And we need to examine the motives of our heart. Because otherwise, we can just delve into satisfying ourselves and not live out Christian lives in our community and with other people. So first, I want to lay out the, the basics of what it means to have self-interest, right? So on the heels of the golden rule in th verse 31, which calls for radical love to be extended to your enemies, he picks up here in verse 32 and through 34, and he outlines three specific areas where I think that we exhibit this quid pro quo, you scratch my back, I scratch your back type of affection for others. It's three specific areas. The first area I think we'll cover is the attitude. 
We show selfishness with our attitudes. The, number, the second one is in our actions. And finally, in our accounts, as in bank accounts. Let me give you those three again in case I have some note takers. Uh, number one is in our attitudes. There you go. I got you, my sister. I got you. I got you. Attitudes. Uh, the other one is in our actions. And then our accounts, as in our bank accounts. Let's start first here with our attitudes. Look what he says, verse number 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is it? He's suggesting here, Jesus, if we only love those who love us in return, it's a very limited type of love. Why? Because ultimately I'm making the conscious decision to give or withhold love based upon somebody else giving it to me. And frankly, most people are willing to love those who love them. But radical love, radical Christian love says that I'm not just going to extend love to my friends, but rather I'm going to extend love to those who get on my nerves. I'm going to extend love to those who irritate me, those who may have a different political persuasion than I do. Those who frustrate me, those who uh, uh, agitate me, those are the folks that my love shouldn't be cut off from, but rather I should push to love them all the more because isn't that exactly what Jesus has done for us? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if, if he has the capacity to love people that were his enemies, hostile in mind to him, how much more should we? Go and love others who don't love us. Well, I'll take an amen on that. Amen. There you go. There you go. There you go. There you go. That's that preaching tension right there. <laughs> to say it another way, believers in Christ have the attitude that says, I'm going to love others in spite of offense. Because oftentimes, when we get offended, we want to sever the relationship with others. But instead, Christ is saying that there's no real reason if I can reconcile the world, if I can reconcile humans together, there's no real reason why you should be severed from your brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's saying, if you show this type of love, this quid pro quo, this I scratch your back, you scratch my back type of love, you're not really doing anything special at all because sinners do that. Wicked folks do that. So he says, so first off, he starts with our attitudes, our desire, our, our, our willingness to show love only to specific people. But then he moves from our attitudes, and now he covers our actions. Look what he says here in verse number 33. He says, if you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is it to you? This is limited because your kindness, is, this, this is limited because of this. The other person's kindness is the down payment for your benevolence. So in other words, they have to be nice to me in order for me to be nice with them. I'm going to make up a word here. Don't look it up in Webster's Dictionary, but I would call it this. It's, it's prerequisitional compassion. So yeah, that's right. Prerequisitional. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I got some looks like, what is, what is that? What school he go to? Prerequisitional compassion. That means that there's a prerequisite. There's a, a prior requirement 
that someone has to show in order for them to get this love from me. Almost like I'm, I'm making, I look at somebody's credit report first before I can give them a car and a down payment. That's what it's, that's what it's sort of entailing it. And, and this can be even, this can be very, very sinister. Why? Because not only do we cut off our affection and our good deeds to people that do us wrong, but oftentimes we'll use it as an excuse to get our revenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so when, when somebody does something wrong to me, talks bad about me, mistreats me, rather than me leaning on the everlasting arms of Jesus to ultimately bring vindication to the issue, I step out on my own and make a mistake that just digs me deeper in the hole. I want my, because I want my vindication. But Jesus is saying here, let me fight your battle. Now, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's happening. In, I don't know what's happening in your workplace. But that's one of the ways that Satan tempts us is by seeking to get vengeance on people when the Lord is saying, haven't I already shown you I'll fight your battle? Haven't I already shown you on the cross that your biggest enemy was sin? And that that sin was keeping you away from me. But yet in my mercy and my grace, I have defeated your biggest enemy. Jesus is saying, you don't need vengeance because you have victory in the cross. It goes on here. Again, if you do good to people that only do good to you, then all it is is nothing special at all. And finally, Jesus goes to his third point. He talks about our accounts. Jesus wraps up by saying some basic tenets. Look what he says in verse 34. He says, if you lend to those from whom you expect to retrieve, what credit is it from you? Right now, he's challenging the perversion of how loans were, how lenders offered loans. It's nothing wrong with lending and expecting to be paid back. I wish somebody would say amen to that, right? Yeah, we, we, have I lent some money? Now, I use this verse on my dad when I borrow some money. I say, Dad, you shouldn't expect to get any money back from me. You shouldn't, you shouldn't expect that. But, but, but he'll say, well, well, boy. Well, he wouldn't say that. He'd say something more colorful. Uh, he say, uh, he say uh, Romans 13 says, pay to all what is owed to them. I say, oh, touche, touche, Pop, but you still ain't getting this money back. <laughs> still not having it. What, what, what Jesus is referring to here is the type of lending that obligates others to lend in return because that was a way in which these predatory lenders were protecting their own, their own financial stability. So they would give not to address a need in the community, but, they would, but it was motivated from selfishness because if I lend with the hope that if I'm ever in a similar set of conditions, that someone will lend to me. Some of you are saying, well, I don't lend in that way. Uh, uh, but, but if you examine closely your acts of generosity, often we'll notice that we don't perform acts of generosity to meet the needs of people. We don't perform acts of generosity to uh, address specific ailments in our community. But oftentimes we perform them because it boosts our own self-esteem and makes us feel like we're, we have some self-worth. We feel this great satisfaction when we help others, but oftentimes, if we examine it, your supposed generosity is really building yourself up. 
It's an altruism. And Nietzsche said, Art famously argues that people often give to others not to address a need, but rather because they want to fulfill a sense of moral superiority. So we have, to, we have to examine our motives here. Our motives are often tainted because we're using them as an opportunity to make ourselves feel better about the life that we're living. The problem with this type of predatory lending is it often leads to paternalism in which the person becomes dependent upon me to provide their needs. But then it can quickly turn into disdain if my altruistic efforts are not met with respect and gratitude. So in other words, if the person does not respect me, then I cut it off. I cut off my gratitude. I cut off my, my good doing because it's not met with the expectation that I want. So Jesus is saying here that there's nothing special about that. And if I can sum up those three points, I would sum them up like this. A few weeks ago, I just came back from London. Now, I've been watching a lot of Westminster Abbey, so I thought that in London they were famous for fish and chips. Uh, what I quickly realized is that they weren't famous for fish and chips anymore, but rather it's chicken tikka marsala. That was the most popular dish. I said, well, I could have gone up the street. I could have gone to Philly to get this. But nevertheless, we were on our way, and we ended up finding a fish shop. Right? So we got the fish. We, we ordered um, and, and I don't know whether it was the lack of sophistication of my palate. I don't know whether the fish just wasn't, we, maybe we went to the wrong shop. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the unrealistic expectations that I thought I was going to experience when I ate the first bite. But once I put the vinegar on the chips and I dipped it in the tartar sauce and bit into it, I realized that it just wasn't anything that special. And I think Jesus is saying, this very same thing. If you exhibit these type of selfish virtues, well, in your attitudes, in your actions, and in your accounts, it's really like those fish and chips. It's not anything special at all because it's motivated by selfish concern. And ultimately, we're using people as pawns on our chessboard of selfishness. But if we take an inventory of our lives, I'm sure that many of us in here say, you know what, I'm guilty. I, 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 I'm guilty as, as, of using people as a stepping stool to accomplish my ultimate goals. And further, on a practical level, a lot of us live our lives like secular persons because our focus is on the here and now. It's, about, it's not about on hope eternal oftentimes. It's about attaining what I can in this lifetime and chasing after this pursuit of trivial happiness. But the question is, is though my scriptures affirm that I have joy eternal in Christ, why do I still pursue so diligently after these trivial pursuits? I'll tell you why. It's because deep down, if we're honest, we are not content with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We feel like the death, the burial, the resurrection, and this new life that we have in Jesus is simply not enough to satisfy the deep longings in our lives. And we find ourselves like the author of Ecclesiastes. He says that he built a mansion. He amassed all this gold and silver. 
he had a praise and worship team in his house because he was trying to figure out the meaning of life only to be tackled by the, by the understanding that there's much disappointment in success. Success is just not as great as it's all chopped up to be. And there's no correlation between wealth and contentment. I think Dr. Tim Keller said it best. He said that wealth, power, achievement, and material comforts of this world only lead to momentary satisfaction, which fades, leaving us more empty than if we ever tasted joy at all. The great church father, Augustine, in his confession, he says, when we sin, we neglect we're neglectful of order. We, we fix our love on the creature instead of thee, the creator. And when the Lord is anything, when we love anything more than God, what ends up happening is we, we harm the object of our love, we harm ourselves, and we harm the world around us and are left deeply dissatisfied. Why do we do that? Because the object of our affection is crushed under the unrealistic expectations that we have. It just can't measure up to them. Just can't. When we love anything more than we love God, we harm ourselves, we're left deeply dissatisfied, and we absolutely crush that idol of our affection. So there's no point. There's no point here of pursuing after Self-interest or being a slave to it. It's like drinking Gatorade when you're thirsty. They say it quenches your thirst, but it just makes you more thirsty because of the sugar in it. And similarly, that's like our parched souls. We need the pristine waters of the living gospel. We don't need the sugary beverages of these trivial pursuits that don't bring any lasting happiness. So before Jesus here... Before he explains the blessing that's associated uh, with displaying this revolutionary type of love, he scrolls down his Twitter timeline and he retweets his last post. He just says, once again, love your enemies. Do what is good. Lend to others expecting nothing. That's what he says. In turn, however, there's a great reward for this. There's a, a great reward, the scripture says, of those who exhibit this type of love, this type of Christian love. Look at the blessing here in verse 35, the A clause. Look what it says. You display this type of love, then your reward will be great. I don't know about you, but I think all of us want to be rewarded. Amen. All of us want to be blessed. All of us want to have the favorable hand of God upon us, even when we do stuff that we know we're supposed to do anyway. You'd be like, God, look how well I'm taking care of these children. They have food every day. They got a house to live in. I got a touch of OCD, and they just destroy everything in my house. But I'm holding on to my sanity, Jesus. And Jesus is like, well, you're supposed to do that. I thought children were an inheritance of the Lord. You're like, oh, Jesus, these kids, they just cost me so much money. Well, didn't I give you money to take care of them? Isn't that a blessing? We want to be blessed for stuff that we know that we're supposed to be doing anyway. But Jesus outlines in this passage, in this verse, of a, a, fail, a, a fail-safe way in which you can be blessed. Here it goes. Simply act like your heavenly Father. It's that simple, right? 
He says that the, the kingdom of God is not based upon uh, uh, this, this hope of reciprocal treatment in this lifetime. We love our enemies. We do good. We lend to others because we know that earthly reciprocation is limited. But the father provides treasures that cannot be exhausted. That means when I'm trying to live for Jesus and someone takes advantage of my trust, when I'm trying to love my neighbor and they seem to keep cursing me out, when I'm loving my, my spouse and my coworker, and it seems that things just go wrong, all Jesus is saying is keep on doing those things because those are the premise for me to affirm and bless you. He said, let me just catch you demonstrating the character of God. My little daughter is 17 months, and she has already entered into the, tw- the terrible twos. I didn't know that they entered so early. I thought I was going to at least get to month 20, uh, but this happened already. So she, uh, I have a touch of OCD, so she just tears up my house, makes a big mess everywhere, and expects me to clean it up. And she knows that I will because I I do, because I'm daddy, right? But one of the things that really brings me joy about parenthood especially is when I see her mimicking me, right? I see her trying to hold a spoon and preach like me, bless her heart. But bless her heart. Bless her heart. She's got a way to go. We're still trying to teach her the gospel. So, you know, she, she got dad-dad now. I'm like, that's good, baby. Amen. That's the gospel. <laughs> Forget I said that. You didn't even hear that. That was a glitch. That was a glitch. So, so, so what's beautiful is, is, is she bears so much of my resemblance. She smiles like me. Uh, uh, she doesn't like to listen to her mom like me. In fact, she gets on her mom's nerves just like me. Uh, But what I often do is when I catch her mimicking me, when I catch her looking like me, often I run over and grab her and I give her all these kisses and hugs. And since she loves fried chicken and watermelon, if I have it available, I give it to her because she just loves that. I don't, I don't know why. I'm embarrassed sometimes. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed by that. It's okay. You can laugh. It's, It's just embarrassing. I'm like, babe, you're supposed to be woke. Like, you can't. Anyway. You got to have some dietary. Anyway, anyway, anyway. I was watching the Dave Chappelle. Anyway, anyway. Right. So, so she reminds. So, so I, y'all make me lose my plane. Oh gosh, here we go. Okay, works on mom's nerves. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Okay. So, so when I catch her looking like me, I run over and just give her all these kisses. Pick her up. Why? Why do I do that? I can't help to bless her because I caught her acting like her father. And church, I want to tell you this morning, when, when the father notices you demonstrating his character, when he sees you loving your neighbor, when he sees you repenting, when he sees you giving sacrificially, he can't help but into some way bless you or reward you for being a faithful son and daughter. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to hit the lottery or become a millionaire, or even know that the situation that you're receiving is a blessing. But what it does mean is that our daddy loves us so much. He loves us and affirms his promises by letting us know, listen, if you act like me, I'm going to to affirm you and bless you. It's great comfort. We don't have to contrive various type of ways to be blessed from God. We can just model his character and know that he affirms that. And not only will we be blessed in that regard, but it will also, the, the tail end of verse 35, and, it will, and you will be children of God. 
Now, because he's speaking to his disciples in this context, we should see the word, the, the verb will be should be understood as more like will show yourselves to be. So it means that that when you when you demonstrate this character, you will show yourself to be a child of God. In other words, your behavior is verification that you're actually in the covenant community. Right. Right. The, there, there's assurance. Assurance in faith does not happen by simply walking down the aisle. It doesn't, it doesn't happen by an easy confession, but rather it's demonstrated in the fruit of our walk with Jesus Christ. In other words, your character is indicative of your conversion. One of the ways that, that's one of the ways that we can be shown this. So not only does he promise to bless us, not only does he promise to give us affirmation, but now in verse 36, he gives us the basis for why he's so good for, to us. Look what he says. But God is gracious to the ungrateful and the evil. I love that. He's kind to the ungodly. He allows the sun and the rain to fall on us both. And he doesn't have to. He wasn't obligated to. Verse 35 and 36 describe him as a gracious father because he gives us what we don't deserve. He's merciful because he gives us what we don't deserve. And he's gracious because he holds back what we do deserve. So all of us are evil in mind. All of us have been warped by sin. All of us, I'm reminded of Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. Romans 3, we've all fallen and come short of the, the glory of God, which proves my point. That, that bad things don't happen to good people, but rather it's the opposite. God is merciful because he allows good things to happen to bad people. Because we've all cheated God wrong. He has a holy standard, and we could just not live up to that in our own pursuit. But church, as I close, I want to just tell you this last story. I remember when I was a toddler. and My dad would give me a bath. He would run the water, and he would put me in the warm water. Then he would grab a cloth, and he would come down on his knees, and he'd put soap on it and he began to wipe me down but he said at one time specifically when I was a real little boy he said that I grabbed the washcloth out of his hand and I took the soap and put it on there myself and he was a bit amused by it so he started letting me wipe myself down but after a few moments he noticed that I had missed some spots he noticed that my my job of cleaning myself really wasn't that good. So what he did was I handed him the rag back, and what my father decided to do was he, 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 he realized that my standard of cleanliness didn't match his own standard of cleanliness. So what he decided to do was get down, condescend on his knees, put his hands in the dirty water, and then he took that, he took that rag and decided to wipe me down so that I could be made clean. In other words, my father became dirty in order so I may be clean. And church, all I'm trying to tell somebody this evening is when I think about my Jesus, when I think about how he condescended down, he saw me swimming in a tub of sin. He saw me in the dirt and the filthy mire of my iniquity, but he decided in his mercy that he was going to come down from heaven and that he was going to die on a rugged cross for you and I. But now, so now I can say that there is a fountain. 
filled with blood that's drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And when sinners like you and I plunge beneath that flood, we lose all our guilty stains. I'm just thankful today that it was the blood of Jesus, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, saw me and you writhing in our sin. He saw us, but he decided in his mercy that he wasn't going to leave us in that state. He decided that he was going to die a sinner's death for you and I, undeserving people. And not only did he die, but he rose again vindicatively. And he did that to show that his payment had been accepted by the Father. So now I don't have to pursue after degrees. There's nothing wrong with pursuing after degrees. Let me rephrase. I don't have to find my contentment and my worth in degrees. Or in money. Because I can look to Jesus. Who could have served his own self-interest. But decided that he was going to divest himself of all his riches. Decided that he was going to put his assets in a blank trust. Give them to the father. And come down into sinful flesh. And die a sin. Die for sinners like you and me. So I want to encourage you today. Don't be a slave of of self-interest. Be a servant of the most high Jesus. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the abundance of your mercy as communicated to us so richly in your son. Lord, we recognize oftentimes that we have come short of your glory. We have pursued after material things and we found our worth. We found our value in them. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us for focusing our attention on the creature and not and not thee the creator lord we love you today we confess our sins we confess that we have done wrong but lord we thank you for the atoning work of your savior of of you lord your son who died on the cross a cross and died a death that i should have died but that you rose again and death couldn't keep you and the grave couldn't hold you and that one day we will be with you in eternity so lord we honor you we thank you we give you glory In Jesus' name we pray, amen.